and welcome to HPG's annual event, uh, which is focused on the humanitarian implications of a rollback on rights. It's really brilliant to see so many friends of HPG here in the room um, and also online. I'm Sorsha, I'm the director of the Humanitarian Policy Group. I have to start with a little apology. I know we're starting late. We had some technical issues um, and a big apologies for those who were joining us online, but we're, we're here now. And we've got a fantastic panel and a really interesting topic. Some might think this is a bit of a strange topic for humanitarians to focus in on um, because of the somewhat uneasy sometimes relationships between humanitarian um, action and, and human rights and the uncomfortable relationship sometimes between humanitarians and human rights defenders. Um, concerns are often raised that if humanitarians stray too far into calling out rights violations, into advocating for accountability, that they risk losing their ability to access people in need. But yeah, whether it's Rwanda, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, uh, Syria, some of the greatest recognized failures of humanitarians have been when they haven't engaged sufficiently in the politics of a situation, in the rights violations and done more to use their influence. This event is happening as part of HPG's annual advisory group meetings and we were talking a lot today about how we have to be careful not to humanitarianize what are political challenges and political responsibilities. But at the same time, I think we also have to question whether aid or organizations are doing enough when we're seeing a restriction on rights uh, globally. And while these restrictions on rights are not just happening in crisis context, they're also happening in so-called liberal democracies. Um, and what we're seeing and ever more evidently is how closely interconnected these are. So that the rules, the norms, the checks and balances that protect the lives of the most vulnerable um, in crisis context are only sustained if they reflect the checks and balances that sustain people's rights and liberties at home. And we were interested in doing this event way back in 2020, following what we saw is kind of ongoing paralysis at the UN Security Council level in the face of real atrocity crimes in a range of different contexts. Um, and President Trump at that time issuing legal orders against ICC officials and a real kind of dismantling of, of global institutions. We were already warning back then about the lack of engagement on protection of civilians and advocacy, calling it an age of caution on the part of humanitarian agencies in the face of widespread impunity for, for rights violations and I, I violations of IHL. That was before the situation we see today in the UK, where we see the UK government rushing through emergency legislation to allow it to sidestep a Supreme Court ruling that declared its attempt to outsource its international refugee responsibilities to Rwanda as illegal and counter to both domestic and international law. That was before the Roe versus Wade ruling in the US that meant a reversal of hard fought sexual and reproductive health and rights there, which is part of a global uh, rollback on gender rights, including as we'll hear more about in places like Afghanistan. And it was before the situation we see now in Gaza, 
where President Biden and other Western leaders appear to, to openly acknowledge that Israel are committing IHL violations there and yet still have their broad political support. So we are seeing a dismantling of the rules and the institutions that were designed to protect people's rights, both at an international and a domestic level. And that while this clearly has life-threatening consequences in humanitarian situations, we only have to look at the plight of refugees on European borders to see that it has life-threatening consequences here too. Um, so to bring these issues to light and to answer the questions of what the implications are for humanitarians, we've got a fantastic uh, range of panellists here. Uh, first of all, Hassan Akkad is a British Syrian filmmaker, writer and human rights activist. I had to ask Hassan, you know, what actually is he now currently you, working on? Because he does seems to do so much. It's hard to know uh, which is uh, his priority. But at the moment, uh, he tells me he's working quite a lot on trying to bring kind of issues around displacement to a much broader public audience and try to humanize these in, in different forms of, um, of film and other uh, cultural uh, platforms. Um, on my right, we have Dr. Uh, Sultan Barakat, who is the director of the Global Institute for Strategic Research um, and a professor at Hamad bin Khalifa University in Qatar. And then to Sultan's right, uh, Fareshta Abbasi, who is a, a researcher uh, with Human Rights Watch, uh, working specifically on women's rights issue in Afghanistan um, and Afghanistan uh, rights issues more widely. Um, and then to our right, we have Dr. Danny uh, Sris Karanjara, who is currently uh, the CEO of Oxfam uh, uh, GB here in the UK. But before we get started for our online audience, just to uh, make you aware that we have simultaneous translation in Arabic, French and Spanish. Um, so if you want to click the button um, at the middle of your screen to select the language you'd like to listen to, Closed captions are also available and you can access them also on the button on your screen. If anyone like to tweet, our hashtag is HPODI. Um, and for those of you online, please do use the question and answer function uh, to put forward any questions or comments to the, the panelists and we'll try to take them up here. Hassan, we thought we'd start first of all with you. Um, no <laughs> Um, I just wanted to, I guess, start with a more personal question about, you know, I guess the the image that you had of the UK before you came here, before you travelled here, um, and how that changed because of your journey to the UK and the result of, of living here for, I guess, over about a decade now. Nine years, yeah. Nine years. Yeah, nearly yeah. a decade. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Can, can you hear me? Because I, I can't hear me. Oh, great. Okay, perfect. Excellent. So I, I, I was born in, in Saudi and I lived in Syria. So I've done my fair share of living in authoritarian states, uh, nearly 20 years. <laughs> my vision of the UK was actually, my, my vision was quite bright and incredible because uh, Great Britain invaded a, a country which is very close to mine, Iraq, in the name of democracy. So I was like, this is a country that really cares about democracy so much that they, they went <laughs> and they <laughs> so yeah i mean really value democracy <laughs> so 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 i'm being a bit facetious but it's uh, i i i i no but genuinely i mean i have studied english literature and i was always fascinated by british culture um and when i made the decision to come to britain uh, to, to, to 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 
go to Europe after Syria became a failed state. I, I, Britain was my immediate choice because I could speak English. Now, my expectation, I'll tell you what, actually what I very naively said in my home, home, home office interview when they said, why Britain? And I said, well, it's, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the center of human rights and it's a, it's, it's a country that really respects uh, democracy and all of that. Um, uh, and it's about uh, transparency and freedom, things that I genuinely value. And I'm not going to be, uh, I'm going to be honest. I mean, I, I, I value that I can tweet here and not be deported. Uh, I, 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 I have so many privileges that I can protest. I have privileges of putting out a lot of political work outside without fearing any repercussions. Because in Syria, I went to prison because of because of protesting. So, so yeah. So that was the, 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 that was my that was the the sort of the my expectation. But then I came around. Remember, I came around in 2015 when it was during the referendum. And there were these big billboards about Turkey is going to join the EU and 70 million people are going to come to Britain. Uh, there were the breaking point posters. Basically, I, I saw a very fundamental thing happening in Britain, which, is, which was based on lies. The, 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 the people, I mean, it is a democracy because people voted, but they voted on lies. So um, I, it, it was to me, I didn't understand. I was like, is this, is this how democracies work? Because I've never lived in one before. So I was quite curious to see how it works. And then I was like, this is all based on lies. So it, does, it did not look right to me. And then since then, um, especially in the world of displacement, things just got worse and worse and worse. Um, uh, I mean, how many Home Office secretaries we've had in the last year? Um, four, five, I can't remember. But we, the language that was used was very, is a language that um, the Assad regime used in Syria. And I'm not even exaggerating, but when you say that, this is an invasion, uh, or when you constantly say in the media that this is these are fighting age men, uh, this is an invasion, fighting age men, people are coming for a nice stay in a hotel, um, uh, illegal migrants, constantly using a rhetoric that is dehumanizing people who are genuinely fleeing for their lives. And the, the Refugee Council did a study and they found that 84% of the people who are crossing the channel are legitimate asylum seekers. So it was it was a letdown. I was I was quite let down. I was disappointed in, in my adopted country uh, that this is happening. And I think most recently um, um, is with, with, with what's happening in Gaza, to be honest, because I expected I expected better. I, 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 I was so depressed by the rhetoric. I was so depressed when I saw our prime minister going to Israel and saying we want you to win um, uh, that that really I'll tell you why. Because the last eight years of my life here, every time there's a politician or a, someone on the TV talking about me as a migrant, they're like, you have to respect British values. You hear that a lot on TV. You, people should come here, they have to live by British values. And I was, I mean, I looked at British values and they are very interesting values. <laughs> uh, and they're respects, um, tolerance, rule of law, individual liberty, and, and there's a fifth one, which I forgot, but they're really interesting values. I don't think our government is living by any of these values, not at all. So why do you tell me as someone who's migrated to this country and like my community respect these values constantly, but you're not living by these values. If you are allowing a genocide to take place in a constant of what's happening in Gaza or also here when, listen to this tweet. I mean, if, if, I, if it's not, I mean, do you wanna guess, was this Syria or Britain? We are a reasonable country, but our patience has now run out. 
Our parliament is sovereign, and it should be able to make decisions that cannot be undone in our courts. That's what this emergency legislation delivers. Mm -hmm. So rule number one in the British values that I should live by is rule of law. <laughs> they, they, they flushed it in the toilet. You know, like, um, so sorry, I, I'm sorry. I mean, I may have not answered your question, <laughs> but I am. Um, but yes, that's that's what yeah. I think. That was my expectation versus the reality of Britain. And also, I want to highlight that something that I have never voted in my life. Never, ever, um, because I've never, you know, I again, the, I never had the, 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 the privilege of being, being able to vote. And I was genuinely very excited because I only got my citizenship maybe seven months ago. And I was like, I can't wait to vote. Given what happened in the last six months and given having Keir Starmer, a human rights lawyer, going on TV and saying, oh, yeah, Israel's got the right to, to, to blockade Gaza and cut off water and electricity, and a human rights lawyer, and given everything that has happened, given MPs being sort of like, um, you know, um, um, be, being, you know, they're, they're removing the whips or they're being threatened if they vote for a ceasefire, for a ceasefire, just vote for a ceasefire. I feel so politically homeless and I, in this country and I, I was so excited to be part of this, you know, the pol political movement and all of that, something that I haven't done, but now I feel so politically, sorry if this is a bit depressing, but this is genuinely how I feel. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were very interested to hear from you because <laughs> I think of both your personal, you know, experience, but also your political viewpoint. And I think oftentimes, you know, in HPG, we think of these things in terms of you know, we do analysis on these things and we think of it in terms of policy and we think about implications on people. But I think mm. someone like you, you're kind of living between these different worlds. Can I, can I, can I tell you yeah. something very, yeah. very quick? Sorry, I'm taking yeah. time. But I did this talk at, uh, at uh, British military intelligence. Mm. I was invited to give a talk there. I kind of shushed. I was a bit shitting myself because I, I, I mean, I, I don't like anything that has, sorry. <laughs> but I, gave, I went to there and I gave a talk and I gave a talk and I mentioned something that actually after I left Syria, and this is something, you know, like a bit controversial, but I left because I wanted because there's a death of nuance now. No one talks about nuance. And I said, when I went to Lebanon, I had a meeting with the Nusra Front, which is an offshoot of, of Al Qaeda. And I wanted to join them. And I said that to, 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 to military intelligence officers. And the, it was a bit awkward after I said that. <laughs> <laughs> but then after I explained what drove me to get there as a, as a, as a, as a 22 year old man, who was who was who was very angry and I wanted to seek revenge and I wanted to have a community and I wanted to make money what these groups often provide it was sort of like it was like a light switch I was like you know would you have expected someone like me to be so it's it's, it's I think a nuance is very important mm -hmm. and that's what I'm trying to highlight it's just the nuance of the, 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 the whole crisis I have a lot of additional questions <laughs> in terms of I mean we spoke about the role of different actors and maybe you can speak a little bit um later in terms of the role of humanitarians sure. um, in relation to all of this. But I think we're going to move now a little bit to, to talk about women's rights. Fereshta, you've been working on this um, issue of women's rights kind of globally, have been working on it in relation to Afghanistan. Can you talk a little bit more about, I guess, um, how you see aid organizations engaging on these issues in Afghanistan? Um, and you know, how they're engaging in particular on issues of women's rights. 
Um, I mean, to, to set the context yeah. um, of <clears throat> Afghanistan, more than two thirds of the population is facing food insecurity um, uh, right now in the country. And it, it is a it's a serious crisis ongoing. Um, I personally have spoken to people in different provinces of Afghanistan who have told me that their life is dependent on aid. So um, with this, I want to emphasize that the humanitarian aid organizations in Afghanistan are playing a crucial role, uh, trying to protect um, uh, the lives of uh, Afghans inside the country. Um, and, and also at the same time, uh, it's a very challenging environment to work in uh, because of the restrictions that the Taliban have put on women. Um, when the uh, ban came, uh, when uh, the restrictions ca came on um, for women to uh, be accompanied by a mahram when they want to work, there was additional uh, uh, restrictions on hijab, the way that women should dress once they are in the public. Um, it, it was during uh, the first few months of the Taliban takeover, uh, the aid organization at the time tried to comply. They tried to, for example, create co uh, separate offices, separate work spaces for women to be able to work. And um, I, I was speaking with different aid organizations to, to find out how they are managing for their female staff to stay. Um, and, and, and they were trying to comply with this by bringing additional budget to pay something to their mahram, which is a, a male chaperone or a male blood related family member of, uh, um, of a woman that needs to be um, there. Um, I mean, although rules really differed from one area of Afghanistan to another one, but especially when women needed to travel, they needed to be accompanied by, by a man from their own um, uh, family, which usually brings an additional budget to these um, organizational um, logistical procurement issues that they did not expect to come. So, um, I mean, in, for those restrictions, aid organizations tried to, to comply because they still could function. They still could... Um, deliver aid but when the ban came on women working for these organizations including the un on december 2022 we're um we are about to reach an anniversary for that um the response was different aid some of the aid organizations suspended their operations some of them partially suspended their operations because they knew that it's impossible to work without women it's impossible to make sure that the aid is reaching the vulnerable people if women are not part of that and um this process, this dilemma of few months, whether to work, whether to stay, you might have heard um, statements from, from um, uh, um, UN organization and some aid organization at the time that we are pulling out of Afghanistan, we cannot work, this is not, uh, uh, we are, uh, I mean, they are the, the principles of humanitarian uh, um, um, activities inside Afghanistan are not being um, implemented anymore, um, and, they, and they kind of uh, um, insisted on that, and, and I, I think they were quite persistent on the way that during those few months, and they managed to get some exceptions um, in the health sector, uh, nutrition, and primary education. So these three sectors remain to be the only exception where women are allowed on a policy level to work. We also know that these aid or some of the aid organizations tried to reclassify their female staff um, as health personal, for example, some women are uh, working from home and th this organization in a way to try to keep their uh, their female staff with them, whether it's through a reclassifying and again, giving them a new job description, whether it's through uh, keeping them to work at home and report in one day to a, an office. So they, they managed to uh, uh, to get exceptions in these three sectors. I also would like to highlight that 
it is a terrible and overwhelming burden on the aid organizations to make sure that they are um, they are reaching to the most vulnerable people in Afghanistan, but at the same time, they're not they are not adhering to the Taliban abusive policies when it comes to women, right? We don't want to see an aid organization who is still working in Afghanistan only by male staff. We we don't want them to adhere to the to the abusive policy that Taliban are or are implementing all over the country. So when I say the word on a policy level, it's because we are aware that some aid organizations inside Afghanistan have managed to negotiate on a local level, on a regional level, to work and stay. So and, and, and I think what, re, what is really important when it comes to aid organization trying to work in, in, um, in uh, contexts uh, or in uh, situations of conflict like, like Afghanistan, that they work together and they coordinate activities together. It's very difficult to bring all these actors with different um, perspectives together. And I mean, when we speak of humanitarian aid, we are not naive, right? We know that the humanitarian aid organizations are in a way um, leading political negotiations. They, 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 they overlap in these areas as well. So bringing all these to all of them together, trying to work so they can work in coordination with each other, I think is quite crucial, especially in situations like Afghanistan, because the humanitarian aid organization in Afghanistan remains to be one of the very few sectors that still have access all over the country that still can function that still can um, find ways to work uh, and 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 in a way Afghanistan wouldn't be able to uh, to sustain without the aid right now. Um, I have a report coming on about uh, on access to health services in Afghanistan, and you can clearly see that Afghanistan health system has never been um, the, the budget has never been part of, even if the, if during the past 20 years, it has always been dependent on aid. It has always been run by the aid organizations. And now with, with this development aid and CAT and funding pulling out from Afghanistan, no one can uh, can uh, make sure that this system is functioned and it is still working. So we need the aid organization to stay there and to help because there is no replacement, because there is no system, there is no infrastructure that can replace that. And that means that that comes with the leverage, right? If you need something, it means that it could be a two-sided thing. Um, aid, I mean, aid organization in Afghanistan, or um, I, I think, I mean, they are having. A, it's a lot of burden to put in in their shoulder to say that you need to do this and this and this. But they have a role to play, and I believe that it would be more um, more uh, useful, and we, we may see more changes if they work all together and coordinated with each other. Yes, I mean, what you're painting is the kind of perfect, I guess, tension between kind of aid delivery um, and rights issues. And what you're really pointing to is the need for kind of more collective action and um, a use of that leverage. I mean, do you think that's been handled appropriately? It's a very challenging kind of um, issue to kind of grapple with, um, as you say, but um, yeah, do you think that they're handling it as effectively as they could? I would say, I mean, I don't think if we would have a, we won't have any example all over the world. We are the, we are, I mean, we don't have any perfect example. Aid organizations usually work in, in situations of conflict and crisis. Every crisis has its own unique challenges that comes with, and I'm speaking only about um, um, Afghanistan, right? But one of the things that is quite important is is that to, make sure that i mean to make sure that what every action that 
these organizations take can have consequences. So, for example, when you speak to the aid organizations in Afghanistan and tell them that, well, there is a ban on, on women working, right, on women's employment, the, one of the things that you hear is that, well, our staff work, our female staff work. We have doubled the number of our female staff. That's where these coordinated efforts work because not every organization would be able to negotiate or they may. Some of the other organizations have been working in Afghanistan for years, for many years. And um, you may also know that Afghanistan challenges did not begin um, in, in 15th of August, right? Afghanistan had the even the previous government, the Republic government, never had authority over 100% of the territory of Afghanistan. That means that some of these other aid organizations knew the Taliban from before. They used to work in those very, very difficult, controversial uh, uh, areas. Um, so they, they them, each of them have different role, and I, and I believe that if they work together, it would be we will we will see. I mean, we will see more maybe visible change or, or, or thing in Afghanistan, or we may not. I mean, saying this visible change made me look to be very optimist of Afghanistan's future, as if aid organizations come together, we will see a huge change in Afghanistan. No, but what I'm trying to say is that Taliban are not a, uh, are not a centralized structure. It's not whatever in Kabul is being decided doesn't mean that it's being implemented in Oruzgan and in Kandahar and the villages of um, especially in the rural areas of Afghanistan. That means that if aid organizations are taking different stands in different places of Afghanistan, those who negotiate locally, they take different position in different areas and they need to do so. And that makes it so difficult from, for, uh, for all of them to, to get together and work together. But I think that's what needed. Um, and, and, and that's what needs to happen. It might be a lot of work, it may take a lot of time, but that's what is needed. And that, that's, that might be one of the very, um, I mean, the, uh, the last windows of hope that we have. Interesting. We're kind of moving from one big topic to another big topic, but I wanted to bring you in, uh, Sultan. You've been working on the current conflict in, in Gaza, and um, I wanted to ask you about this intersection between the role of aid organizations and rights, and you've talked about you know, how you see aid organizations being implicated, implicated in the erosion of rights over time. Want to pick up that a little bit oh. and how you see that? Okay. Let me start by explaining what I meant when I said yeah. that. <laughs> uh, the problem with what happened, on uh, the way we perceived what went on on the 7th of October and the reaction that took place since then, is that it was taken out of context. You know, it's, this is very clear politically, but also humanitarianly. You know, we tend to forget that humanitarian aid agencies and donors accepted the position that Israel put the Palestinians in, i.e. a besieged open-air prison for more than 20 years. And instead of standing up for the rights of the Palestinians to be free, to live, to be mobile, to be able to travel, to be able to seek work wherever they need, wherever they could, and so on. We adapted the way we do things to fit within the boundaries that Israel has drawn, both physically and strategically and practically. And it became really uh, um, depressing and worse in 2014, after the war then, when the Gaza reconstruction mechanism was introduced into Gaza. 
And it, that mechanism, the problem with it, again, is not just it compromised our principles and the rights as we see them. It actually made the United Nations the, uh, the entity that oversees the control on behalf of Israel. So everything that goes in the Gaza Strip since 2014 has to be very detailed, scrutinized, and uh, in order to avoid using any or bringing in any material with dual use, as the Israelis refer to it. Now that, I think, over time has uh, eroded the rights, but also the protection offered to the Palestinians, keeping in mind that 84% of them are already refugees. They were already under international protection in Gaza, uh, and they've lost all of that. Uh, so I think that's the context in which well, I made yeah, that yeah. remark, that we, um, I would like to see the humanitarian world sophisticated enough to distinguish between right and wrong. By being impartial doesn't mean we are, we are morally blind. I mean, we can't be, because this is part of why we are uh, doing our humanitarian work because we are morally obliged to do it in, in, in most cases. So we can't go in hiding behind impartiality as the excuse for why we, we, we shouldn't say anything because the Israelis may or may not allow us to continue our operation. The Israelis will do whatever they want to do regardless. They will never come and ask you what your opinion is. Uh, all you do is you compromise your position, you compromise your morals, and the end result is a disaster, as you you see on a daily on a daily basis. Now, um, I mean, I can go on forever about this. <laughs> what I have called for for a long time, and I still think is important, is uh, international protection for Palestinians, and not only the Gaza people. This international protection should have been he here since 1967, the first day that war ended. The international community should, should have moved in, protect the population with a very clear aim and sight that there is a two-state solution. We protect you and, until you get to that uh, objective. And it's not something new. We did it in Kosovo in 1999. It was uh, two or three years of transition, but it kind of worked. You know, it's not ideal, but it's better than what was before. With the Palestinians, I think they've left them for their occupier to be protected by the occupier to be managed by the occupier and his allies in the hope that one way one day they will wake up and they will decide uh, a settlement what's been going on instead is uh, increased infringement on palestinian land uh, even now during the war in gaza uh, the far right uh, they are pushing uh, through the west bank Netanyahu has armed uh, the settlers uh, to the teeth. They were already armed a little bit. Now they're overarmed. He's calling for the establishment of militias. They're terrorizing people. They're making their, their life totally impossible. Uh, he does it, he does, he's doing the same in, in Gaza. And then uh, Biden comes out and say, we will stop any uh, forced displacement. Mm they will be displaced because they will choose to get out. No one can live under those circumstances. The moment you open the door for them, they will run out. Like every, all of us here, we're all worried about our children, our livelihood, uh, dignity, etc. And uh, I think that what Gaza is doing to us all few things. Let me start, let me continue on the humanitarians because sorry, that was a line. <laughs> 
Well, I think the humanitarians went wrong again, aside from the gradual but certain erosion of rights. Uh, on the 13th of October, it was a big mistake to withdraw the international staff from Gaza. Uh, when Israel first said, boo, everybody packed and left the Gaza and their local staff in the north and the center of Gaza, and they hid in Rafah waiting for evacuation. And then they became the story. The story was, how do we get our staff out from Gaza, the international staff? And somehow they forgot on those hundreds who, who worked with them, who drove them around, who delivered aid, who protected them, who shared their food. And the result of it, within only honor, 140 people were killed, 140 workers. And I find it really upsetting that you, the United Nations uh, you know, marked the day by uh, lowering the flag. But that's not the answer. They, there hasn't been any statement until now what will happen to the families of those killed. What is the social protection for, the, for these people? You know, is there a plan? What, how are they going to pick up those families? No word. We're, this is going to be another case to be de decided later. But for now, the fact that they withdrew, I think, it was, was really uh, problematic. And, and finally, I think, I mean, I did mention the, the keeping silence is not, is not an option if, uh, uh, to, to get access. That is something maybe you'll be doing in a civil conflict when you're not quite sure of the rights. Both sides may have a diff, you know, differ, differing views. They may be right on this issue, you know, not quite right on the other. You need to keep in the middle. You do this. With the exception of ICRC, I don't think anyone should do it. I mean, ICRC, that's their job, is to try and keep quiet and keep the lines of communications going. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure if I answered your question. Yeah. But no, thank I you. Come back. I think we will come back again, but I'm going to ask Danny now to come in because I think we started with Hassan, who talked about, I guess, his own personal experience and then the um, what he was confronted with and continues to be confronted with in terms of the UK. And this is something I know you've been working on in, in, in Oxfam, but even prior to that in your role in, in Civicus, the idea of, of civic space. Um, um, so maybe you can talk a little bit about kind of the space, I guess, for NGOs to operate, um, to speak out as, um, as Sultan has just been talking about, but also to kind of use its leverage um, um, that many on the panel have already spoken about. Yeah. Over to you. No, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, this does feel very timely and very um, acute in many ways, given what we've just heard about situations in Afghanistan and Gaza elsewhere. But I think we should also not forget that humanitarians have had to grapple with these sorts of issues for a long time. And I just want to recognize that because Oxfam turned 80 last year uh, and we did a lot of reflection and there are lots of amazing Oxfam ex-colleagues and colleagues, Nigel, John, Marta, Colette. And you know, what's clear is humanitarians have had to deal with complexities of access and neutrality um, for a long time. But it does feel like there's something substantively different at the moment, and I think we should we would be wise to look at what is different, why it's different, and how best we might respond differently. I can tell the difference in my career, um, the difference between 2013 and 2023. In 2013, I, I, I was uh, freshly appointed as the Secretary General of Civicus, as you said, Sosha, the Global Civil Society Alliance, and Civicus Secretaries General, you would get invited to the sort of global gathering of the CEOs of the biggest international NGOs, including many organizations represented here. And in 2013, I remember going to one of these private retreats of the CEOs of large humanitarian agencies and saying, aren't you worried about 
what's happening around the world, the sort of backsliding, the back, backlash on rights, on the shrinking civic space, attacks on civic freedoms. And almost all of them said, no, not really. We're not that worried. We're humanitarian organizations. We're neutral. We have to keep operating. Um, and it was really worrying, very disappointing that uh, these senior leaders wouldn't engage with these issues. But today, ironically, I sit on this side of the, of the fence in some ways, working inside a, a large international NGO. It's very different. Not, none of us can avoid having to look at uh, having to deal with what's happening around the world. And if you want a sense of the sort of comparative scale of what's going on, have a look at something called the Civicus Monitor, which is an attempt to look at just civic freedom. So the freedom of assembly, association and expression in every country in the world in almost real time. And you'll see the deterioration that has happened in the last 10 years the fundamental attacks on individual civil liberties, uh, the, uh, the compromising of the enabling environment for all sorts of civil society organizations, but particularly those organizations that work on rights, that speak truth to power, that dare speak out. And to the extent that if you look at today's Civicus Monitor, the estimate is there's only 3% of the world's population that lives in a country that's considered free and open for civil society in a five-point scale. And to Hassan's point, this wonderful country where we think we have a mature and stable democracy that isn't in one of that in the top category. Civic UK was downgraded earlier this year um, to the next level down because of what's happening around the freedom to protest. And this is, I'm talking about six months ago, before the coronation and the arrests that took place, before what's been happening in the last two weeks, uh, a few weeks already, uh, there were concerns about civil civic freedoms in this country, and it really is worrying because you can't be complacent that we happen to live in a in a mature democracy that this will um, this is all fine. It's not fine, and we really should be worried. Um, the other thing I wanted to make a point I wanted to make, Sosha, I think, is that there is. I think the other difference, perhaps, is that the way that many of our organisations are working these days, perhaps, and this is a hypothesis, means that we are more vulnerable to these sorts of uh, attacks or, or backlashes, or put a different way, perhaps more positively, that we have to be better prepared. And, and what are those ways? Well, if you think about a nexus approach, it forces us by necessity to look at uh, uh, conditions and issues and, uh, and interrelationships that go well beyond meeting immediate need. And once you start to engage with what does it mean um, to protect gender equality in the context that we're working in. What does it mean to build peace and stability? It forces you into terrains in which that backlash is going to bite. And similarly, if we talk about localization, um, the actors we want to promote, support, nurture, strengthen, don't have the cover that many traditional INGOs have had. We don't, they don't have the big trusted logo in the, uh, on the sides of vehicles. They don't have the protection of being able to take their foreign staff out. And so, you know, there are a couple of things that are happening inside our own sector, I think, that means that we really are, you know, both impacted by the backlash, but have to be much better prepared to understand and respond to the backlash. And obviously, Oxfam has been working on issues of kind of global justice, uh, kind of gender, gender rights issues. And how have you seen this play out, I guess, in terms of Oxfam specifically? You've been very outspoken 
recently in relation to uh, the Israel-Hamas uh, conflict, but that's not unique. You've outspoken on many uh, conflicts and crises as part of your rights and crisis work. Yeah. So I'm wondering how you're seeing this as, as Oxfam, as both the kind of uh, a rights organization, but also a humanitarian organization. So there's two observations. One um, around what, again, what's happening in this country as an example, which is, you know, I, I was talking about civic freedoms and the individual freedom to express assemble. Um, but there are there are challenges to the institutional operating environment for all sorts of nonprofit or um, uh, civil society organizations. Um, we've seen uh, a clamp down on um, the ability of, of, of independent civil society organizations to speak out. You know, there have been attempts that we call it the chilling effect to tell charities in this country that we shouldn't speak out. Uh, there was a, a little known attempt three or four years ago when in the cabinet office on the cabinet office website on a Saturday morning there was a proposal floated that required any recipient of UK aid to not be able to criticize the UK government <laughs> within hours that direct draft directive was removed from the cabinet office website but that gives you a hint of the sort of thinking that's going on and it relate you know and especially organizations that then relate to core aspects of democracy and so the operating environment for any organization, but particularly those who of us who do want to speak out and, and defend independent civil society, speak out for rights, I think it feels more vulnerable than it has for a long, long time. And um, there are a whole range of measures. And the second is uh, hearing Sultan talk about uh, Gaza. Um, it, you know, our, our team at Oxfam, we have a rights and crisis program that's been running for a, a long time. And it's been about trying to make sure that we speak out where we can, where we have to, where we can. Um, and for me, the, the most sort of heartbreaking um, experience in my five years in this organization has been the last few weeks um, hearing from our own colleagues in Gaza um, and asking them, what should we be doing? Um, and the message is, is clear, it's consistent, and there's only one message which is you have to call, do all that you can to stop this violence, to end this uh, cycle of violence. Mm -hmm. And so we're an 81 year old humanitarian organization that's proud that we can build wells and save lives and do all of that. But here we are in 2023. And the only thing we can do is the strong advocacy and as strong as we can to be able to bring a, a, a just peace uh, to that troubled region. And so, you know, if ever there was a, a sort of divide between humanitarianism and a belief in, in rights, um, it certainly doesn't feel like it exists today. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. I think we've made quite a sweep from the personal uh, to the institutional. Um, but I wanted to open it up now. I guess we've got a lot of very experienced humanitarians in the room. And the first question I guess I have is, is how you see it. I mean, do you recognize this picture? Is this something um, that you're seeing in your work, in your operations? Um, um, and then also what you think the role of aid organizations is in relation to, to the picture that we're hearing. So we've got some mics, I think, um, in the room already. I saw a, a gentleman here. Um, Please hands up. Um, a lady here at the front. Um, Thank you. Um, for me, some of the most powerful testaments. Sorry, if you want to just sorry, say who you are. Andrew, as well. yeah. uh, Andy Seal from UCL Institute for Global Health. Um, for me, some of the most powerful testament that's come out of Gaza 
over the last few weeks is from MSF. And they were fulfilling their humanitarian, strictly humanitarian mandate to do that, but reporting on what they were seeing within their sector technically. So I, for me, actually, the last few weeks have uh, reinforced the need to return to basic humanitarian principles that the most powerful testament that can come out of these situations is if people are reporting from a humanitarian perspective within their own technical sector in this case health if it was oxfam perhaps water yeah because those are so the uh, the power of those messages is is could not be greater i think okay thank you I know we have some MSF colleagues here in the room as well, um, so I'm sure they'll be glad to hear that. Um, there are lots of hands up here at the front, um, so I don't know where the mic is, but the maybe we can yeah. bring it up to the front here. Yeah, up here, if you want to just keep keep walking around. There's a question here. Yeah, if you, I saw you had your hand up, yeah, and then we can come to colleagues in front. Hopefully it's on. Um, yeah. My name's Jane O'San, and I... Um, I'll tell you what I'll lead in a minute, but I want to raise a word that I don't think, sadly, any of you perhaps have raised so far. I work with religious leaders, and I want to talk about religion briefly. I work with religious leaders to tackle prejudice and discrimination on the grounds, in my case, of uh, sexuality and gender identity, but increasingly across all areas of human rights. And uh, having worked in the Middle East, having worked in many hotspots around the world, it's the one topic that we find very difficult to talk about, both in humanitarian aid organizations and in human rights, because it is so sensitive. But unless we understand the context, so as, as you explained, Sultan, and unless we understand the, the religious context and work out who our allies are in this space, I think it's very difficult for us to find a long-term solution. And so my question to you, I, I lead something called the Global Interfaith Commission on LGBT Lives. So I bring together senior religious leaders around the world who are, uh, in, in my case, pro-LGBT, but actually perhaps looking at uh, constructive dialogue and debates. And when I say senior religious leaders, I'm talking about archbishops and popes and rabbis, senior rabbis. It's trying to get to the top of the tree. But what role does religion play, do you think, in this thorny issue? Because ultimately, it is often the fuel behind the rollback. And if that's the case, surely it should be part of a solution to help stop that rollback. Interesting. Okay. And we have another question here in the front. Hello, uh, thank you. Um, very delighted to hear from wonderful panelists. My name is Nazifa Harpal. I'm a former Afghan diplomat. My question is to Freshta. Um, uh, it's uh, uh, so we know that Afghanistan is more now the focus of uh, of international organizations and international communities delivery of humanitarian aid. But at the same time, um, the gross violation of human rights that's happening in Afghanistan, and also it was happening, uh, as you also mentioned, that to those areas that um, Taliban had more control and uh, the government uh, didn't. Um, so there is a kind of nuance to a delivery of aid and also like overlooking the rights um, 
in, in, uh, how the international community or aid organization like uh, that at the same time they have to keep their neutrality but also how to make sure or uh, to understand these nuances because to not to give a different picture to to the to to, to the uh, funders or donors or public back in the western countries for example like i've been hearing a lot uh, from uh, aid organizations that you know there is we can access areas we can deliver um aid to uh to, to women or for example today i came from a meeting uh, from the uk uh um parliament where uh you uh, uk special envoy he was talking about how um the earthquake that happened in uh, in herat uh how we are still delighted that uh, the aid delivery uh happened to reach to women but also the people that delivered they were women but at the same time like you know this is a very small picture that can undermine the full picture of like you know gender discrimination gender apartheid in afghanistan or generally the uh, violation of civil political and social rights of uh, people in, uh, in afghanistan so how to how to navigate particularly for organizations such as human rights watch that is more speaking to, to power and also ensuring human rights how you would kind of you assess that you know not to make compromise uh, on the fundamental human rights which is core and essential for you know future perspective of any country uh, just for delivering of aid services because there is also an argument that you know aid organization or the un there are also kind of you know exploitation of aid delivery is happening so um, yeah sorry for going so off very long thank you thank you so I mean, I think we'll take one more question, um, and we've got some uh, hands up here, maybe. Yep, great. Hi, everyone. Um, so I'm a communications professional within the sector, and something that I've just noticed from social media across the sector is the censorship when it comes to um, the Israel-Hamas war at the minute. And what I find quite interesting and what I want to pose to you all is because of the current funding space within the sector, I'm sure you're all aware the cuts that have happened, especially since the FCDO, kind of the 0.7% GDPs kind of rolled back and all the kind of a lot of different NGOs are kind of fighting for funding for different projects. Do you think that because of this, a lot of organisations are kind of not wanting to speak out on things and kind of censoring themselves a little bit more is the question. Thank you. So yeah. we've got a lot of questions here. One is, you know, should organisations just stick to the basics? And I think, Andy, you mentioned this, of really kind of um, speaking to the humanitarian need um, as they see it on the ground and bearing witness to that. And that's the most powerful testimony that they can provide uh, to a very opposite, I think, challenge about how does humanitarian become, a, you know, a cover uh, for a lack of of uh, action on on rights, on justice, on on political momentum, the role of uh, the role of of, of religion, um, um, whether uh, aid cuts are leading to, I guess, a chilling effect on aid organisations, um, and then there's another question online um, on the role of media, and we've heard about you know whether faith actors are both kind of part of the problem and part of the solution that we need to be engaging with. So you can take your pick. They're all a big wind of questions. Hassan, um, do you want I mean, to? I talk about censorship and yeah. uh, and uh, and what you said about uh, organisations not sort of 
everyone's afraid, everyone's scared. This is scary times. Um, actually, can I just give you, I speak an anecdote. So I'm going to tell you when the Syrian uprising started, people used to start fake Facebook accounts uh, to, to, to post under them and also hide their identities when they go on protests. I wasn't expecting that 11 years later, I'm going to come to Britain and see the same thing happening because people are losing their jobs. Um, uh, organizations are also being controlled by their donors, by their big donors. So you have to do what the donor is telling you and whether if you don't do that, then you're going to be under, you're going to be, they're going to underfund you and then you're going to lose um, 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 that funding, that necessary funding to keep the projects that you're supporting uh, afloat. Um, um, uh, censorship is also part of it. I think, you know, it, it was, if it was very interesting for me to see, to compare between the response to Ukraine compared to the response to Gaza, because Ukraine, I would walk in, 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 in Tesco's and they'll tell me, you know, donate to Ukraine. I'll, I'll order on Deliveroo. They'll be like, donate to Ukraine. Uh, there were Ukrainian flags everywhere. And rightly so, you know, what happened in Ukraine, what's continued to happen in Ukraine is, is savage. It's, it's, it's also a war crime. Um, but it was an easy sort of, it's a, it was an easy one. You know, it was, uh, people were doing gigs, fundraisers. It was, part, you know, at schools, by the way, schools, fundraisers at schools, you know, they're, they're, but, but compare what's happening to Palestine. It's, it's nothing. So why, I ask myself why, I think at the heart of this is racism. I could be wrong, but I think it is racism. <laughs> I think, I think, I think, and that was also said during the response to Ukraine, is that these are civilized refugees. So they have blue eyes and they drive cars like our cars. Uh, that wasn't the mainstream uh, rhetoric, but this was floated and this doesn't smoke there, you know, there's no smoke without fire. So um, 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 I think, uh, I think, Again, I'm not a humanitarian, by the way, and I have, but I am the least knowledge of aid organizations on the panel. But I think we should restructure the model of of humanitarian aid because I think it should be led by people from the community, and I think there should be more and more people with lived experience in the decision making room, because quite a lot of people sort of like they put you on the social media. To, we're diverse, you know, like we're, we're cool, we're woke, but it's actually not. Um, and, and also, I think regarding access, because there was a point about access and there was a point about if you speak about against the what's happening, we're going to limit your access. Why is why? I think Oxfam does that when you are sort of like funding grassroots um, organizations, you know, led by the community, speak the language already are trusted. Why don't we see that more? You know, why do we have to fly Westerners into these uh, areas and then they can come back and write memoirs about their PTSDs. It's, it, it, it's <laughs> 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 but it's. I think that all needs to be readdressed. Um, did I answer your question remotely? Great. It's a lot of very interesting uh, and uh, quite on. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit. I'm a bit. Um, can I correct you no, with something? Course. Yeah. Yeah. You kept seeing conflict. Um, I, <laughs> I'm a bit annoying with language, but I think language is very important. But I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an Israeli-Hamas conflict because there's no equal footing. I think it's a. I think I wouldn't. I would. I just wouldn't describe it as a conflict. I think it's a. I think it's a war in Gaza. Um, I'm just yeah. Sorry, just wanted to say yeah. yeah. Well, can I, I come back on this? Please, please do. Yeah. Yeah. Great. This is more interesting. <laughs> Netanyahu actually agrees with you. And this is the first time since. <laughs> Let me explain. It's the first time since 1973 that Israel declares war, and he formally declared war to hijack the Israeli public. And I know because I have lots of friends. I know that not all with what is happening in Gaza, but by declaring war, 
and not doing yet another special operation like Putin was doing in Ukraine, or Israel did repeatedly in Lebanon. They occupied Beirut under special operation code. He did this because he, he was in a very weak position. And I think when governments start to eat on the rights of expression, so this is when they're weak, and maybe this is what's going on here. I mean, I, don't, I haven't been, I need to go back, but I, I, I haven't been uh, in contact uh, closely with the local politics in Britain for the last few years. But I think since Brexit, it's an expression of, of weakness that you start then cutting back on rights and so on. And this is exactly what Netanyahu did. He was in a very vulnerable position. He has already been muddling with the politics internally, with the judiciary and so on. And he took this as an opportunity, declared war, suspended everybody's opinion. It's now him and the mini cabinet that is created just for war with his extreme right, and I'll come back to the religion issue, with his extreme right religious uh, perspectives on what should happen in, in Gaza, Palestine. They're running the show on their own. And they've been blindly supported by the United States, uh, who are motivated, obviously, uh, by the elections coming up, and more so by the religious vote that is coming from the Christian Zionists. And the irony of, of all this is that the Christian Zionists believe they should support the Jews to return to Palestine, for them to be converted eventually or killed. And extreme Muslims believe the same story, we all believe in the return of Christ, and that they also would turn a blind eye to some to, to the existence of the Jews in uh, Palestine until the day of judgment, when we are very confident as the Christians are, they will convert or they will die. And you sit with these three parties talking about interfaith, and you ask them, which happened with me, and the Israeli would say, well, let's work step by step. You first return us to Jerusalem and Palestine will build the state, and then we'll talk about the conversion side of the story, whether it happens or it doesn't happen. But that religious belief is very much at the core of a lot of what's going on. Uh, a few last week, I think, I don't know if you noticed in the news, it went very uh, light news. Netanyahu laid the foundation for a settlement in Gaza. Under all this, the guy is at war, he's attacking, people are moving in and out. And he's still wanting to please the ultra-right, and they go and they celebrate in a corner of Gaza. He's laid the foundation for a new settlement yet. And uh, I can talk more time about the plans, what he has in time, but I suspect what is going to happen in a few days, you will hear this unfolding, he will split Gaza into three territories. And the buffer zone that he's talking about is no longer the boundary of Gaza, Israel, is going to be like number three, you know, or three pockets all the way to the sea it will come in and will create these buffer zones the populations for them to return they will return under his conditions and what is very sad about all this is that we will all go and be complicit in allowing this plan to materialize because we are driven by our humanitarian imperatives we have to be there we have to help the gulf states will finance it the uh, Biden, on the, on the day he arrived in, uh, in Israel, announces $14 billion in bombs and military hardware and $100 million in humanitarian assistance for the Palestinians. What do we all do? We line up to see how we can share the $100 million. He's just announced $14 billion for weaponry and unquestioned support. They opened their 
stores basically to the Israelis. They're using the most amazing advanced weapons that has not been checked before, not been tried before, not in uh, uh, Iraq, not in Afghanistan. And he's able to do this, I think, because he has, he knows, obviously, he's very sophisticated and he knows the history of Europe, he knows the history of the Middle East, he knows the history all the way back to the biblical roots. And he's mixed up three stories, the Holocaust from day one. He named it as a Holocaust, so he immediately alienated, or not alienated, stopped anyone who had any connection remotely with any European who lived in the 1930s, 40s from speaking out. Then he mixed it with 9-11, and this was the 9-11 of Israel. Then he, he, he banked on all the horror that the United States unearthed uh, as a result of 9-11. And finally, he mixed it with ISIS. So he, he by, mix, by doing this, he, just, he justified the destruction of Gaza, the killing of people, because we, again, kept quiet when they destroyed Mosul. There were 500 fighters in Mosul. Was it worth? destroying the whole city to get these 500 people? Was it worth displacing 280,000 at the time to get to the 400 fighters? We are all, we've done this again and again. And unfortunately, uh, he's very smart in history. <laughs> he understands all this. He builds all these narratives. And then it's very difficult for you to stand up and argue with him. You know, you just say, well, we'll wait and see, we hope you win, or we'll come back to you to win as fast as you can. This is what the US was hoping for, is that he just does it within a week or two. But the guy is now has gone eight weeks, uh, 17,000 now killed, I don't know how many more thousand injured. And I suspect every one or two of those injured because of lack of uh, health facility infections are probably likely to pass away. I'm going to um, bring Fareshta in, but I think you might have answered a couple of uh, questions here, including the question about kind of whether humanitarian is used as a cover for kind of political inaction or uh, kind of wider issues of injustice. But Fareshta, there was a specific question for you, but there were also questions about the role of, of religion um, and censorship more widely. So over to you and then over to Danny. Um, thanks, Fareshta. I was thinking that, um, I mean, I think kind of we're agreeing that human rights needs to be the the main component of humanitarian action um while humanitarian i mean humanitarian aid organizations are responsible to protect lives but it's also um their responsibility to make sure that this respect for human rights is at the core of uh, of their activities um uh, during i mean while they are working and also right after that. I think we all kind of were trying to, to say that maybe it's time to redefine the role of humanitarian um, uh, uh, humanitarians, especially with um, conflicts unfolding one after each other. Um, when the 15th of August happened, I thought that this is the worst thing that could have happened to this world. I could not imagine um, uh, the war um, uh, beginning in Ukraine, and then I could not imagine seeing what is happening right now in, in, in uh, the situation of Israel-Palestine. Um, it seems that we are moving to uh, an, a, a different direction, and that means that each of these conflicts are coming with its own like unique challenges, and we need to kind of in its time to, to redefine it uh, because there's a lot we we spoke a lot about how the humanitarians are operating and what could be done I think 
it, it is time for these discussions to get together and then to lead something so we can act or to do better. Uh, I mean, specifically in the case of Afghanistan, one of the things that is very important is that we need a strong monitoring mechanism in Afghanistan to report on how this aid is being used right now. Um, the, the solution to a humanitarian crisis has never been to dispatch aid, um, beginning from sending caches. Um, I mean, UN is still uh, dispatching um, uh, bags of cash to Afghanistan, basically because Afghanistan does not have a banking system. That Afghanistan does not have a central bank. There is, there is no, the economy system has collapsed. How can you make sure that this, this, a country can survive if they don't have a banking system, right? So, I mean, that role can go way beyond that. There is no, there has never, I mean, aid organization being in Afghanistan for 20 years, still trying to help. There has never been a, um, a future looking into what should happen in the next 20 years in Afghanistan. And that's not something that aid organization can replace. So I think at some point we need to think of how long are we going to stay? How should this be done? What else could be done? And, and I think those are those are the questions that was being raised in, in, in the discussion today. I, I really liked when, um, I don't remember your name, but when, when um, one of the participants said that, um, the, the strong testimonies were, that were coming from Gaza was from MSF. So I think it's, I was just thinking of the testimonies that is coming from aid, uh, humanitarians from Afghanistan is that, yes, I mean, people speak to you and say that they don't have anything to eat, that they're, it's a very dire situation, but you're also speaking to, to people who say they don't have jobs, you speak to women that they say that they can't work, you speak to your own staff that cannot work anymore. So I think the way that these messages are, are being sent outside is very important, and I think maybe it's time to, to reframe all of those um, as well. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Um, Danny, do you want to come in on these range of different questions? Sure. Just quickly on the third, on the last one, I think there is a structural issue. I don't know about individual organisations, but if you just look at the source of funding for many of the world's largest humanitarian organisations, the, there has been a seismic shift in the last few decades towards institutional income. And that might come with some of that sort of direct constraints that you're talking about, but it definitely comes with indirect constraints because we've started turning what were uh, it, you know, independent, individually funded humanitarian agencies that could speak out on principle into this sort of cross subsidization program for, you know, very complicated uh, bits of the development industrial complex. It's a very difficult um, system in which then you can preserve your independence and, and your voice. And I think that is a, is a structural question that we have to ask ourselves about. Um, uh, you know, how do we how do we preserve that independence? I think to Andy's point around the sort of uh, you know, it is important that we talk about the, you know, we ground the the advocacy that we do in the lived experience of the people we work with, but also our own colleagues. But Frank Judd, Lord Judd, who some of you may remember, who was my predecessor at, at Oxfam many years ago, passed away a few years ago. Um, when I first met him, and I, when I first started, he gave me one piece of advice. He says, Danny, when you're being your most political, sound your most charitable. And it was wonderful advice. And, and it's when you are being your most political, sound your most charitable. And I think it's a lesson for all of us that when we are trying to make a political point, ground it in charitable fact. But what he didn't say was don't shy away from being political, which is, I think, an important lesson for all of us as well, right? Especially in, in, in these sort of contexts. And if I may, on the, on the religious po uh, point, Jane, you're yeah, absolutely right. I think if we talk about the sort of wider social context in which we're talking about these values of, of 
to what were they? Tolerance, rule. Tolerance, respect, rule of law, uh, individual liberty. Yeah. I had to study them for my yeah, test. I'm glad you did because <laughs> <laughs> I've forgotten. I took my life in the UK just a long time ago. Uh, but you know, uh, the, the, the tiny numbers of us who work in professionalized humanitarian sector, I've got a blip in the in the sort of wider social conscience, and we need you know all the allies we can, particularly you know religious communities, to sort of buttress and protect those values that are going to be so essential for us to protect uh, human rights. Um, we don't, we're really out of time, but we're going to do another round of questions. I think I do this every year and I get, um, but there's a colleague um, here, uh, Sandrine, with her hand up. Um, there's another colleague here and there's lots of questions around um, online about whether it's not just about the politics, about the aid organizations being too, too passive um, whether we need to engage more with authorities and government actors. So there's lots of questions coming in online, but over to you, Sandrine. Yeah, hi, uh, Sandrine from MSF, and I, I didn't pay Andy, <laughs> but thanks. Um, no, I just really wanted to say that this is really welcome debate, and uh, we definitely are witnessing the humanitarian implications of uh, the lack of rights, and, and besides, you know, Gaza, Afghanistan, we can also name the Rohingya population uh, and the migrants in the Mediterranean and here in the UK. Um, and I just wanted to add a few other kind of features of this environment. Um, so, you know, these kind of disinformation laws that are being passed, which actually are being used to silence um, humanitarians, not only human rights advocates. Um, so we're, you know, we used to be sort of free of the pressures that the human rights people uh, were feeling about uh, speaking out, but I think now it's it's much more dangerous. There's laws that hold people personally responsible. Um, we are also seeing the rise of anti-rights groups, so grassroots grassroots groups that are advocating for um, rights to be withheld from certain populations. Um, and they're in a civil society-like space and sometimes invading those spaces. Uh, I think also, I mean, for us, we see a lot of aid restrictions and controls from governments, uh, authoritarian governments that are trying to control aid through uh, bureaucracy, permits, uh, regulations, uh, a little bit what Hassan was saying also like you, you have to deserve that aid, you have to be on the right side of the of the line. Um, so for us that's always a discussion about what are red lines there, um, how far do we go in working in these kind of highly controlled environments where you know we're working with a Ministry of Health or, or maybe a local organization but in a society where there is virtually no uh, freedom of expression or freedom of assembly. Um, we've, we're also living through um, criminalization of aid workers and we have, um, for our migration work, we have several cases against us in European countries um, where our staff are being personally taken to court. Um, so yeah, so for me the, the big story here is I think we really need to work more closely with human rights organizations and uh, yeah, we just need to uh, Keep fighting the fight. Thank you. Here, here. Um, there's an, another question. I think there was, yep, here, and then uh, uh, last one at the front. Thank you. Hi. Uh, my name's Karen. I'm a postgrad at uh, SOAS, 
um, previously worked for MSF and Red Cross. So I've just been here, I've just moved here from New Zealand to study and I've been absolutely appalled at the state of the media representation of the Gaza marches in, in England and just the biasness of the you know, BBC, The Guardian, representing these marches as hate marches. And I, I'm just appalled, absolutely disgusted. Uh, call me naive. But you know what? Why, why is the British government so anti-Palestinian? That's what I don't get, considering the role they had in, you know, going back years ago. And also, what can we do and what can NGOs do at trying to persuade the government to say get a grip what why why are you just so pro-israeli i just don't get it so i'd be interested to hear your opinions on that okay well we have a uh, maybe uh sarah at the front the... it's a comment more than a question because you've been having this debate for many years let's face it you know when you were first Run at HPG in was it 2008-2009? We were having these discussions, and you wrote about it in the context of Darfur. But there is something that is different today, and I completely agree with Sandrine. And it is the context in which this is happening, which is a context where the anti-rights forces are definitely becoming more dominant. And we know because there are teams, you know, the other have studied that that they are well coordinated, well funded, well organized. They're intentional. They're supported. They're occupying the political space. They're occupying the normative space because they're actually enabled to be part of, you know, those spaces in which rules are made and the UN and some of the corollary bodies. On the other hand is us, where the, the, the tiniest of distinctions sets us apart, doesn't make us work together. You know, where we scramble for funding, we scramble for visibility, but we're not able to build a platform that really brings us together and allows us to take a stance, including with our own governments where fundamental rights, as you're saying, are denied in such a blatant way where, you know, the basics that is the foundation of these countries in terms of values is challenged on a daily basis. And I think that's where as humanitarians we need to go back to basics, you know, we hide behind the neutrality. We're mixing up what neutrality is because not having the moral courage to stand up for what is right and what absolutely we should defend and upheld, uphold, that is a problem. It's not neutrality, it's cowardice, it's self-censorship. And the time has come, you know, given the context around us to finally take a stance and work together before, you know, this infringement of rights becomes so deep that there won't be a way to come back from that. I think, to, sorry, just a quick one to both of your comments. I think something that, because I used to be a teacher in Syria and, um, and I, I and someone once asked me, it's like, how do, you, how, do you, how do you rebuild a failed state? I said, well, you start from the classroom, really. That's how you rebuild a failed. But there's something I noticed also in Britain is that Britain also, I think, Britain shies away from addressing its dark past in the classroom. And, um, and, and I think that is a big fundamental problem because in the Gaza context, in the Palestine context, for a lot of people think that it started on the 7th of October. But as you know, when you start mid-story, your narrative is flawed. And, 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 and I spoke to 
quite a lot of people, my circles, my friends, you know, like champagne socialists who sort of like hang out in Soho and go to Soho House and all of that. And they had no clue, literally, no, absolutely no idea. But then I went and I, I looked around. We, they're, not being, they're not being taught, you know. Britain teaches only when Brit, Britain was the good guys in the Second World War, in the First World War. But when, in the context of Balfour Declaration and Sykes-Pico and how they covered the Ottoman Empire and drew these lines, which are still, you know, that is still sort of, that is the reason why all of these things are happening. That's, that, is, that is affecting voters because voters are putting the people in the office. And that is why we have politicians who are completely, they have the moral backbone of a frog. And they're not, you know, they're absolutely, sorry for my, but like they're absolutely not doing the, the, the job that they're meant to do. And something else about media, you will notice in throughout the last, um, uh, it's been 50 days, 60 days, um, um, in one headline, you will be like, Palestinians uh, died, this many Palestinians died, and this many Israeli, Israelis were killed. Um, and this is, sorry, but this is not, I'm not talking about the Sun and the Daily Mail, I'm talking about the Guardian, I'm talking about the BBC, and I'm talking about sometimes left-weaning um, uh, um, uh, news outlets. And, 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 and do I, uh, to your question, why? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I do know, but I'm also a bit worried about, because I don't want to be deported. <laughs> but yeah, there is a fundamental question there. And I think it all, I think, we should, we, I think it should be addressed in the classroom, because that's, that's where it all starts. That's another area where Netanyahu I agree with. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Netanyahu... We're, we're, we're over time. So maybe we can have a couple of minutes from each of you in his, to close. In his future yeah. plan for the Palestinians, he's blaming the United Nations UNRWA for their education curriculum. And he's now talking about de-radicalization of the, of the Palestinians which, uh, in his words, they need to learn, this is maybe why the British are taking their side, they need to learn to accept what was decided for them. Mm. You have to accept your faith, Halas. This is, this is where you are. You, uh, Britain decided this 100 years ago, we're implementing it, you're just being naughty. You are, you are demanding too much of freedoms, or you're trying to do. So he's now working on a very sophisticated plan and I hope no agency will ever accept the curriculum that he's working on or work with them on this curriculum, no matter how much money yeah. is involved. Thank you. Farish, did you want to say a few final words in terms of, I guess, the, the picture that's on being painted about where we're seeing this rollback kind of um, more widely than we've discussed now, but also I think the challenge that we really need to take much more seriously where we are at the moment and agencies need to and find their moral compass and uh, stand up and work more collectively on these issues. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I would 100% um, agree that they need to be working together and there needs to be that coordination because when you work together in team, you have more leverage and then um, you, you, can, you can basically um, uh, discuss and, uh, uh, your needs. And, it's, it, it, and in that case, you don't need to then go and negotiate on a, on a, on a very like, local level. Um, just to add to your point that they, it's not as if we're in uh, tonight sitting in London that criticizes the, uh, the the way that the UK policy is impacting uh, lives all over all around the world. It, it's also it may sound ridiculous, but at some point Taliban are criticizing UK as well because 
they, the British military committed war crimes in Afghanistan and they're not looking mm -hmm. into at that, right? And then when you, when you want to hold the Taliban responsible and accountable for what they're doing right now in Afghanistan, one of the arguments that they usually say is that why you're not looking into other, other parties' <coughs> crimes, right? Mm -hmm. U.S. military, Australians, U.K., British military, and these are the things that what surprises me and fascinates me is that when you speak about even the details of the war crimes that have happened in the south of Afghanistan and the and the British military was, was involved in that, there's there is zero public support for that. How dare you convict our, or accuse our sons that we give blood to that country? How how dare you you can accuse them of doing something like this even when they know what the details are? You need to have that moral requirement to be able to criticize that. And I think at some point, most of these countries that we think, or at least we expected, or we we see that they are they they're supposed to be on the right side are losing that that moral i mean that qualification to be able to criticize even um uh, i mean a crazy a crazy group as crazy as the taliban um, well i suppose words. yeah to reflecting on sandrine and sarah's comments um and I suppose, Jane, you asked about uh, religious leaders and Sultan, you talked about the Holocaust. And I want to close with a, a poem um, from Martin, Martin Neumoller, who some of you may remember was a Lutheran priest immediately after the Second World War, reflecting on the Holocaust and what lessons he, he drew. And he gave a long speech. It's often referred to in a poem that some of, so many, of you will, or many of us will know, which is, first, they came for the socialists. But I did not speak out because I wasn't a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I wasn't a Jew. And then they came for me, but there was no one to speak out for me. And I think, you know, the lesson for us is uh, they're coming after us. We, we can't pretend that we're some sort of humanitarians above all of this, protected from this anti-rights backlash. Um, and not only do we have to protect ourselves, but I think we have a moral obligation to speak out for others um, who are being undermined and, and attacked. And I think that's, that's the point of tonight's um, discussion for me. Thank you for ending on that. And I think also, I mean, we've talked a lot about, um, kind of, I guess, the rights and violations in Gaza. But I think it's also important to remember, um, to bring back, I guess, the wider context and remember the Holocaust as well. Because, I mean, this is not about a right or wrong of a conflict. It's about thinking about civilian suffering. So I think it's a very nice note to, to end on. But um, we tried to paint, I think, what was kind of quite a broad canvas of issues here about the very personal, um, the, the, I guess, the more professional um, and the political and see how it's playing out. Um, but I, um, I'm not going to try and wrap it up um, in any way, but I think it's very sobering, I guess, to kind of just think and hear about all of these issues, both here in the UK, um, but also how they're reverberating globally. Uh, we've been thinking a lot in our advisory group about the role of humanitarian agencies, whether you know we need to be more political, whether we need to engage further beyond kind of humanitarian action. And I think if ever there was a call for humanitarians to go further and to engage much more on rights issues, issues of justice and the politics of humanitarian action, I think it's been kind of heard loud and clear on the panel tonight. So please join me uh, in thanking uh, the panel for all of their contributions.